Well, I hope you will bear with me. My uh, voice is very, very weak this morning. David Wamsley said before service that he would pray that my voice would be strengthened. And I added, 20 minutes later, you can pray that it will go away again. <laughs> he didn't add that. I did. But uh, Pastor Jimmy has assured me that if uh, it fails completely that I can tap out and he will promptly take over. So if you will please stand with me for the reading of the word in Luke chapter 2 beginning with verse 8. Luke chapter 2 beginning with verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that this is indeed your word. And we pray that you would be pleased to move upon our hearts and minds with the power of this sacred text that would impact our hearts and our souls, that we would be changed because of it. Please be here through your Holy Spirit to teach and instruct us. Lead us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the issues that always comes up when preaching with a familiar text, and especially one at Christmas time, is the very fact of its familiarity. There are texts that may be more obscure with which even a, an experienced Christian uh, might uh, not have never heard a sermon or at least not recall having heard a sermon. But we certainly have all heard this. Perhaps we have some memory of Linus reciting this during one of the Charlie Brown specials. Uh, perhaps we've heard sermon after sermon at, during the Advent season upon this text. And so we begin to think, well, there's really nothing new that can be brought out of the text. I'll confess that there probably isn't. But I don't like trying to bring new things to light. I like trying to bring up the old faith and just make it as real as possible for today. To let people see that this faith that has been passed down from generation to generation is still very much real and genuine for us today. So if you can, for a moment, set aside pictures of little children wearing bathrobes and taped on beards and little fake sheep, and as the light shines upon them and the angelic voice of some fire for, for a moment, and just travel with me 
to those fields outside of Bethlehem where shepherds actually watched their sheep at night. You see, this is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a clever story that's designed to evoke all sorts of sentimentalism, all sorts of tender feelings of warmth and love and joy and peace. Rather, this is an historical narrative. Luke had carefully studied these things and is relating them to us as fact. He is giving to us details about what he had learned through his studies, about what had actually occurred as he is inspired and moved and directed by the Holy Spirit himself. We live in a world that tries to divorce itself more and more from miracles. We are more and more used to the mundane, to the ordinary, to this purely natural And any idea of the supernatural breaking into this carefully crafted world somehow strikes us as odd or peculiar or naive or short-sighted or uneducated. And yet, in reality, these events actually transpired. God actually invaded time and space. God actually penetrated that little bubble that we protect. Here we see three things, and I want us to start, and I'll actually go in a little bit different order. I'll I'll, uh, actually pull up some of the vignettes of some of the things that we see throughout these verses. But for those of you who want to take notes and like to have three points, here they are. Humble folks, glorious messenger, and the greatest king. First of all, we start with the humble folks. And I I chose that word in particular because it, it evokes the very sense of humility. Anything that's folksy. Can't be proud and arrogant and ostentatious. And those humble folks are the shepherds. They're out tending their sheep. They're out doing what shepherds do. Shepherds were outcast in this society. They were considered unclean and unworthy and, 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 and unable to come and join in with regular society. The Pharisees had enacted all kinds of strict rules and regulations in observing the Sabbath... And because of the necessity of caring for sheep, that, in, that necessarily intended someone having to actually be there on the Sabbath to watch over the sheep, to care for them. There was no way they could simply abandon them and go to the temple or the synagogue and worship with others. They had to actually stay out there in the open and care for the sheep. And because of this, they were considered outcasts. They were also uneducated. They were the lowest of the low, the straight-up blue-collar worker. And people looked down upon them and despised them. They could hold no office. They couldn't give testimony in court. It was just a very menial job that they engaged in, as if they were unfit and unqualified for any more noble task. Think about this for a moment, that when God intends to invade space and time with an angelic messenger, one that hasn't been heard for centuries of time in Israel's history, God decides to send those messengers to shepherds. Not to kings and queens, not to dictators, not to those in power, not to the religious elite, not to the scholars and the priests. 
not to those who are noble, who are arrayed in fine clothes and who eat fine dainties and who enjoy an elegant lifestyle. No, God instead sends the messengers to mere shepherds. The humble, the meek, the lowly, those who have nothing to brag about. These are the ones to whom he reveals his glory. So they have a very low position. And while they're sitting there keeping watch over their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. I love the uh, paintings that came out of the Renaissance of angelic beings. Uh, we often say when a child is born, oh, they have a cherubic face. Do you know that the cherubim were guardians of God's glory? The Ark of the Covenant has two cherubim, one on either side with, facing the mercy seat, and their wings are stretched out and touch each other. When God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he set a cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep them from coming back in to repossess that and perhaps take of the tree of life and live forever in a fallen and corrupt state. Do you know that when angels appeared on the scene in blazing glory, without human disguise, in blazing glory, their first words were always, do not be afraid. I'm sorry, the little cherubim of the Renaissance period would never evoke such a response. The real angelic creatures are higher and more noble than human beings in and of themselves. Their glory, their majesty, their power and might are astonishing. When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, laid siege to Jerusalem, God sent Hezekiah the prophet, or sent Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah the king to tell him, Do not be afraid. God would surely give them the victory. Sennacherib had made fine speeches about how no God has been able to withstand us. Every nation that we have gone up against, we have destroyed, and we will surely destroy you. Do not let your king tell you that you will survive. You will not survive. I will crush you under my mighty fist like I have crushed every other nation before you. But Isaiah said, do not be afraid. And that night, while the Syrians slept, God sent one angel into their camp. And the next morning when Sennacherib awoke, 185,000 men lay dead from one angel. These beings are filled with power and might and glory. And so when he appears and the glory of the Lord shines around him, this is the intense glory of the Lord which must have still been somewhat muted because had it been revealed in full glory, they would have been incinerated. But the glory of the Lord shone round about him. And they were afraid, and rightly so. Again, though, divorce yourself from flannelographs. Divorce yourself from clever plays or from movies that try to display this. And for a moment, step into this time. See yourself sitting there with the shepherds going about their business at night. I don't know whether they were because they were the cast off of society, whether they were completely unholy and profane, whether they sat around the campfire uh, telling uh, off-color jokes, or whether perhaps they were still in their hearts devout servants of God who looked forward to the coming of Christ. It seems likely that that was the case because of the response to the angel's message. 
It seems likely that even though society had rejected them in their hearts, they still look forward to the coming of the Messiah. They still lifted their eyes and hands up to the heavens and look forward to the hope of the salvation of Israel in the Messiah. But when the angel appears, this is something completely unexpected. And they're driven to sheer terror. When Daniel saw an angel of the Lord, the holy prophet of God, he fell at his feet as though he were dead. And the angel said, stand up. And he said, I cannot. And the angel had to touch him and give him strength before he could do so. These powerful beings invoke fear in human beings. And so the first message is, do not be afraid. What do you think went through their minds as well? They're confronting holiness. And we are unholy. How can we stand before holiness when we are so filled with filth and corruption? All of their sins probably came flooding back to their minds. God has sent an angel down to judge us for our sins. But the angel's message is, no, do not be afraid. I haven't come in judgment. I've come with good news. With glad tidings. With a joyful message. I have come to bring to you the uh, sure acknowledgement that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is born this day in the city of David. If I may, I want to come back a little bit to some of the titles that he says. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. He says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And lying in a manger. Now think about this for a moment. The angels come. They don't come to the kings. They don't come to the priests. They don't come to the religious elite. They don't come to the scholars. Or to the worldly wise. Instead they come to shepherds. And then they give this testimony. Here's where you're going to find the baby. Wrapped in swaddling cloth. And lying in a manger. It's not the place for a king to be born. David's kingdom was glorious, and Solomon only enhanced it and made it even more so. But David's son will be born to humble parent and laid in a manger. This is an amazing thing. But the shepherds themselves were lowly people. And so what a good news this must have been to them to hear that the Messiah was coming, but he wasn't coming in royal robes. He wasn't seated in some palace somewhere. He wasn't lying in some soft, downy bed. Instead, he was laid in a manger in a place where they fed animals because parents were poor, because there was no room for him in the end, and as there would be no room for him in the world. How this would inspire hope that this good news was true and that this was given for them because he was a king who would not think it too high or too great a condescension to come down and be born among them and live among them. We would be used to the idea of a king who comes with a crown and a robe and a royal scepter we would be used to the idea of a king who sits high up on his throne and is exalted above those around him, but a king who condescends to become a human baby 
and be placed in a manger, to be surrounded by animals, to have shepherds as his first courtiers. This is a king of inexplicable wonder. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As if to confirm the angelic message, there is more than one in the testimony of, in the mouths of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. And so there's more than one that appears. Now the, the skies are ablaze. Now there is a whole host of angels joining in and praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those with whom he is well pleased. If there's one message from Christmas that can survive in a thoroughly secularized culture, it's the idea of peace on earth and goodwill to men. We can use that term, that phrase, in any commercial we want to from Madison Avenue. We can plaster it on our houses. We can put it up on our work cubicles. We can use it as greetings in the street. And almost no one will have any kind of problem with that whatsoever. Because everybody longs in some sense, or most everybody longs in some sense, for peace. And what a time to have goodwill. A time when we think of a baby born in a manger. Let's have goodwill to each other. But the message goes far deeper than that. What the angels were announcing was this. God is making peace with human beings. Because we were at war with him. We are his enemies by nature. And as such, we deserve his fierce wrath. He should array himself in all of his battle armor and should come forth with all of his angelic host to do war against this earth. But the angel, angelic host, instead of coming forth saying, we are coming forth to do war, they are coming forth instead to announce peace. Isn't there something about that word peace? I will make peace with you. Now remind yourselves of this fact. He is the offended party. We are the offenders. We are the ones who have aggrieved him. And it's not even like, well, there's a 90-10% split. We've aggrieved him, but he's also done some wrong to us. No, the fault is 100% ours. He is completely aggrieved and it is all our fault. And yet he comes forth with all of his angelic hosts not to announce judgment and wrath and anger and war, but to announce this glorious word, peace. I will be at peace with you. How will he do this? Because he will draw us unto himself by his grace and mercy alone. Because Jesus Christ will bear the punishment for his wrath, for our sins. And Jesus Christ himself will place his righteousness upon us so that God can be at peace with us. This is a good news that they announce Peace on earth and goodwill to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels went away with them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just like they had been told. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So they go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. It's the city of David. The prophecy had foretold that David's greater son, the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem. And so Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. They go there and they look around. It must have taken some searching. If you notice, there's no delay on their part. They go with haste. They hurry. We've been given good news. The messengers have told us we must go. They apparently leave their flocks. Something more gripping, more pressing, more important has consumed them now. They must go and see this child, the hope of Israel, the promised one, the long-awaited Messiah for generations in Israel. Fathers would sit down with their children and their grandchildren and tell them, though we must for now offer up the sacrificial lambs and we must call out upon the name of God for forgiveness. There is coming a day when Messiah will come and he will deliver us from all of our enemies. He will set us free from our sins and we look forward in joyful expectancy for that moment. Messiah is coming. Don't ever forget that, son. Don't ever forget that daughter. Pass it to your children and your children's children after you. Messiah will come. And now the shepherds find out that they have been privileged and favored by God. Not for reasons within themselves. They deserved nothing. But for reasons wholly within God himself. Because it pleased him to pass by the worldly elite. And to condescend to men of low birth and low estate and low title. And to be with them and share with them the good news that Jesus is born. The Messiah is no longer coming. The Messiah has come. Let us go and see. With haste they gather up their stuff. And they leave to go to Bethlehem. They make that journey through the night. Their flocks are left behind. Because they must go and see this one for whom their people have waited for centuries. And when they find him, they're amazed. They stand there, no doubt, in awesome wonder at the Messiah that they saw lying in the manger. I want to go back now because, you see, the story isn't ultimately about the shepherds. It's a good example for us to remind us that God will save Whomever he pleases. Whoever calls upon his name, regardless of your station in life, regardless of whether you are of high birth or low, regardless of whether you are rich or poor, regardless of whether you are well-known or whether you live in obscurity, God is pleased to save all who will call upon him. The messengers are there to remind us of the glory of God, to attest to the fact that this was not just a normal human birth. But there was something so special and so significant about the birth of this child that angelic beings would come and announce it. But we would be remiss if we skip over what the birth is really all about, what the story is really all about. The very center of the story is none other than that child himself, the baby lying in the manger. 
When the angels announced, they said, there's born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are three titles that are given to him here. His name is Jesus, as Steve mentioned from the Old Testament, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. These are not names for Jesus, but rather they are titles. He is a savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. The Lord is a very peculiar name in the Bible and has reference to his deity. This was not a normal human birth because this was not a normal human being. Jesus Christ had two natures. One was fully human and one was fully divine. John, at the beginning of his gospel, says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus Christ has existed through all of eternity as a second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. And in an eternal covenant, God decided that Jesus would come to the earth and become one of us to take upon himself a flesh and blood being, a real human being to die for our sins. There must be this perfect marriage, if you will, of deity and humanity, of divinity and manhood to accomplish our great salvation. So the eternal God living in absolute bliss, knowing nothing but happiness and contentment, decided to come down to the earth and be born of a humble woman and laid into a manger, united with his human nature in one person, inseparable for all eternity now. God became Man, the very God who spoke the worlds into existence, the very God who fashioned and formed his own mother, who fashioned and formed the wood and the straw that was his bed, the strips of cloth that were used to wrap him up, that very self-same God was placed in that manger. When she held that little baby, she held a being who was both human and God. I wonder why she treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. These are mysteries that are too great for us, too wondrous for us. The next thing I want you to see is that he's Christ. Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come from the lineage of David who would sit and rule upon his throne and who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, who would subdue the kingdoms of the earth under his authority and who would establish an eternal kingdom of joy and peace and happiness. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And then, lastly, the Savior. I hate to bring up this, but it's a fit illustration of this point. It's embarrassing to say this, but someone convinced me that I should watch the movie Talladega Nights. 
sure you'll remember Ricky Bobby. Not exactly the best use of time I've ever uh, employed in watching movies. There is one line in there that is particularly annoying. I'm sure you can think of it. When he goes to say grace, and he says, I pray to baby Jesus. Because I just like to think of baby Jesus. But it's very illustrative. And it is in this case. People are quite content to think of a baby. A poor baby laid in a manger. This is all the elements of a wonderful story. It makes for great storytelling. He's come to bring peace upon the earth. Isn't that sweet? We talk about babies and how adorable they are. We're fascinated by them. At least most people are. There are some who try to hide from them. But we're fascinated by babies. And, and so it's easy to think of, I'll pray to the baby Jesus. Because the baby Jesus can't really make any demands on our lives. He really can't call upon us to repent. He really can't come forth preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He really can't stand up there and say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Those are exclusive claims, and we live in a very inclusive society. We want to make certain that we include people of all faiths, and yet Jesus stands forth and says, there's only one way. So I'd rather go back to that little baby and imagine him lying in a manger because it's much easier to put that little baby up there with a statue of Buddha or with the prophet Muhammad or with this uh, prophet or this false god. But when we come to the fact that Jesus is born to be the Savior of the world, we must understand that this is only his initial entrance into time and space. It is the beginning of his mission. It is not the end of it. And if we can come with the shepherds and later with the wise men and bow before that baby and worship him. And yet we cannot follow that baby throughout the course of the rest of his life. And especially when he reaches the age of 30 and is baptized and begins his earthly ministry and begins to preach the gospel, the truth, and begins to reveal to us the Father from heaven as he really is and calls upon us to repent of our sins, to turn to him by faith and embrace him and him alone then we have missed the whole point of the Christmas story. And there will be no peace for those who reject the baby's mission. Jesus Christ didn't come just to give us wonderful, warm feelings about a baby lying in a manger. Jesus Christ came to be the sacrificial lamb. There are some who speculate because the shepherds were keeping watch in fields out by Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was close to Jerusalem, about six miles away, that perhaps the, the, the sheep that they were watching might have been used as sacrificial lambs in the temple. We don't know if that's true or not, but if that is, it would add a greater deal of significance to this whole story. They're watching the lambs that will be used in the sacrifice, and then they're told the ultimate lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice has come. It was necessary that perfect God join himself with a perfect human being and live a perfect life so that he could fulfill the will of God, obeying the law of God, 
making certain that there was no transgression of it whatsoever, not even the smallest, most minute detail, so that when he went to the cross, the spotless Lamb of God, but not this time an ordinary animal, because animals had not sinned. We had a true human being, a real and genuine man went to the cross and offered himself up and bled and died to pay the price for our sins. We need to remember that the shepherds are amazing. Mary and Joseph are a great story. The magi that would come later on from afar, the wise men from the east who are Gentiles or not even Jews would come and bring him gifts and worship this king. They're not the central part of the story. Jesus Christ is. It's all about him. And that is what leads the angels to sing glory to God in the highest. The greatest thing that God is concerned about is his own glory. If you want to know why he chooses to save any of us, it is because it brings glory to him. And that is not because he's braggadocious. It is not because he's conceited. It is because in all of the universe that it's the most right and fit and proper thing that could possibly happen. That God could be glorified. We use the Latin phrase from the Reformation, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. We do not use it because it sounds clever or because it makes it sound rather impressive that we can quote some Latin. We use it rather because this is the central theme of the scriptures, that God should be glorified. Why does he save us? Because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he's filled with pity and compassion for us, but also because this will bring him glory. The angelic hosts cry out glory to God in the highest. The saints who are gathered around his throne, the elders cast their crowns at his feet, and the saints cry out glory to God in the highest, for you have redeemed us unto God. You have saved us by your blood. You have made us kings and priests unto our God. God should be glorified. It is entirely wrong that anything else in the earth should happen. And the universe will not be set aright until all of creation rings out with this wonderful theme of the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And that is what the shepherds do. And the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As we come this morning to the Lord's table, we are reminded that lying in that manger was bread and wine. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These signs bring to our minds and our hearts, recall us to faith, to believe, to grasp hold of the risen Lord in Jesus Christ, who is our food and drink in heaven.